this morning, we're going to have the opportunity to journey with Paul. Um, Paul has been in Philippi. Remember that? He was in the prison. He was released. Um, and now he's going to start a journey, um, roughly about 70 miles. Um, if Paul is on horseback, then this is maybe a period of, of three days. Um, he's kind of along the Aegean coast. Remember, if you're with us, this has a lot of um, connection to many of you because this is the gospel for the first time. Uh, biblically, in the text, we see it coming to Europe. And so if you have any kind of European descent, this is, this is part of your history of recognizing how did the gospel come to my people? How maybe did it impact um, in Europe and Great Britain and now impact the, here in the States and how all that came about? And so um, this, is, this has a lot of application. But, so we're with Paul. Again, somewhere about 70 miles, um, he's being traveled most likely along this Aegean coast. All right, you're there, modern day Greece. If you're thinking about it, we're going to see it in the map in a moment. But Paul's going to come in the synagogue in Acts 17. Um, and when he comes there to the synagogue, we're going to hear that it's Paul's custom on the Sabbath. And the Sabbath was what day of the week? Saturday, right? That was the Jewish day of rest. And so the Sabbath day. And so he comes there in, in the synagogue. And, and so the synagogue typically was a place where they would worship. Um, they're going to be praying together. They're going to have um, they're going to be giving together. Um, but they're going to be doing predominantly studying the Old Testament, right? At this point, um, although Christ has come, He's been crucified on the cross, buried, raised again, the New Testament hasn't come about. So what they're going to be looking at is they'll have the Old Testament. And a lot of times they're going to be looking uh, specifically at Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the first five books. They're Torah, right? They're first five books. And they're going to be studying that a lot. And so Paul comes in in Acts 17. It says that he comes in the synagogue on three Sabbaths. So again, we don't know if that was three weeks in a row or, or how long a period of time he was there. But he does it says that as his custom. And what's Paul's custom? It says that literally he begins to show them from the Scriptures. He's going to say two things. Explaining and proving that it was necessary. That Christ must die and be raised again. And he says, I want you guys to know this Jesus whom I proclaim to you, he is the Christ. And verse 4 is going to say some of them are, are persuaded and then we're going to have a big brawl that's going to break loose. And Paul is going to literally skedaddle. He's going to be on the run um, and gonna, we'll, be, we'll catch up with him next week. But um, hopefully we'll catch up to him. But anyway, let's look just for a moment here at the text. You kind of heard it shared. So they come through, right? They left Philippi, they're at Thessalonica, uh, verse 1. And it says, Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbaths, he, he tells them about the Scriptures, he explains and proves that it's necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. And literally, that's where we're going to be entrenched today. We're going to be looking at why it's necessary for Christ to suffer and rise from the dead. Uh, specifically, though, we're going to be looking at when he's going to look with them from the Scriptures. You see that right there, that statement. We're going to look with Paul at the Scriptures, the Old Testament, to say, is there anything in the Old Testament that would say that Christ had to die, that he had to be raised again? And so we're going to look at that. If you're thinking about in the map there, I don't know if how well you can see it, but if you're looking at the map, just trying to figure out maybe where they are, um, you're right here in this region of Macedonia, right? And so we have Thessalonica here, where it's Philippi, where he was. Again, I know the map's not huge, but hopefully you can kind of get you a little idea of where he is, where he's traveling from, bringing the gospel to them. And so the gospel begins to come forth. And um, kind of a cool word there, if you look at verse 3, uh, again, just trying to break this down so we prepare to head to Isaiah 53. It's where we're headed. Um, it says that he's explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. Interestingly, that word proving there is used about 19 times in the New Testament. And 10 of those 19 actually take the place um, where Jesus is often feeding and doing miracles. And so that proving indicates a setting down of food before them. 
And so it's literally as if Paul's coming to the synagogue. He's saying, listen, I'm setting before you guys some manna today. Some bread. I'm setting before you some manna. And this is manna who Jesus said, hey, listen, those that eat of me, they'll never hunger again. He said, I want you to know there's some living bread today that you can taste of and eat and be satisfied in. And so he's going to lay that down before us. We're going to look at that in the scriptures and begin to walk through it. Now, the question you have to ask today, if you're here and you're kind of inquisitive, is what authority do I have to, to hear these words that he's proven it from the scriptures to go to Isaiah 53? Well, the truth is we don't know what scriptures Paul would have went to. But I do want you to see is that Isaiah 53 could have been a very likely one. Why? I want to show before you three examples from the New Testament that say Isaiah 53 speaks especially about Jesus. So let's get to these three proofs. Again, there's many of them. Um, Kind of as as you're thinking about this, hearing this, when did Isaiah the prophet write? Well, the prophet Isaiah wrote somewhere around the period of 700 B.C. So what's significant about this would be is the fact that this isn't like the Christians saying, well, Jesus died and raised, and so we've got to make up some kind of story that fits and makes sense. Paul's going to say, no, listen, this was actually what was written 700 years prior. This has always been God's plan. And so he's going to take that and he's going to begin to walk through us with it. So three examples. Example number one. In Isaiah 53, verse 1, we hear these words. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Well, listen to what happens in John 12, verse 37. It says, though he, speaking of Christ, had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So the word was, that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. All right, so this is fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He cites Isaiah 53, verse 1. And then look what he says, verse 41 of John 12. Isaiah said these things because, why? He says, well... He saw Christ's glory and he spoke of him. He's speaking about Jesus, he's saying. Second example of why we're looking at Isaiah 53 today. Isaiah 53, verse 4. These words come to us. It says, surely Christ is, ultimately Christ, he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. In Matthew chapter 8, verse 16, we hear that evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons and he cast out all the spirits with a word and he healed all who were sick. He says this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. So he's saying, listen, this is fulfillment of what Isaiah 53 verse 4 prophesied. Third example of why we're looking to Isaiah 53 as a text that Paul might have looked to that day there in the synagogue or one of those three Sabbaths that he's with them. Isaiah 53 verse 7. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that, that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. In Acts chapter 8, if you remember the story of the Ethiopian eunuch, Philip was in Samaria, and the Spirit calls him to go down to the desert road, the road that leads to Gaza, and he goes there, and there's a chariot coming by, and he happens to hear the man's reading from the prophet Isaiah. He runs up and says, do you understand what you're reading, right? And the guy says, hey, listen, how can I unless somebody explains it to him? And it says, the text tells us that in verse 32 of Acts 8, The scripture that the Ethiopian eunuch was reading the chariot that day was this. Like a a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before it shears is silent, so he opens not his mouth. And the Ethiopian says to Philip, who's this guy talking about? Is he talking about himself, somebody in that day? Or is he talking about someone else? Like, what's happening here? Listen to what happens. It says, then Philip opened his mouth and beginning, look what it says here, with this scripture. He told him the good news about who? Jesus. So three times, and there's multiple. We're going to see some. Peter's going to talk about it. 
So there's multiple times that Isaiah 53 is intentionally and directly applied to Christ. So that gives us some credence of why we're doing this today. We're not just reaching, trying to make something happen that may not have any validity at all. So, again, I want to provide that maybe as a proof text to say, hey, listen, I'm not making a far reach at this. There is New Testament validity that Isaiah 53 is intentionally speaking about Jesus Christ. So now let's look. All right, back to Acts 17, verse 3, as we prepare to leap forth now into Isaiah 53. Again, it says in verse, uh, verse 3 of Acts 17 that Paul comes to the synagogue. He's reasoning them with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving what? That it was necessary for the Christ to suffer. So let's look now to Isaiah 53 to say, okay, is it true? Did, Christ, the Christ, did the Christ truly have to suffer? Five statements from Isaiah 53 I want us to draw our attention to today. Verse 4, let's begin there of Isaiah 53. Remember, this was some 700 years prior to Christ even being born, roughly, all right? Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. I was pondering um, this very passage Friday morning, and the Lord spoke to me so clearly. He said, Blake, there's many in the church that are dealing with some serious griefs and some serious sorrows. And it's going to be good news for them to know today that there's somebody that actually can carry those and bear those. So he said, don't rush past it in your desire to interpret and help us understand. He said, just let my text just speak for a moment. So some of you, again, Friday morning, he said, some people need to hear it just to stop this morning. That there's a God who can bear your griefs and carry your sorrows. His name is Christ. Look what it says, though. This is beautiful. If he has bore our griefs and carried our sorrows, and ultimately it's going to look to the cross. All this is looking at the cross of what Christ has done. If he's already bore those and carried those, and he's paid for them in full, and it's finished, and he's done that, then you and I, although we experience some of this in this world, yes, we have hope that in Christ, those sorrows, those griefs that you're dealing with now, one day, once and for all, will be gone. Forever and ever. No more sorrows, no more griefs. Can you imagine a place like that? Can you imagine getting to be in a place where there's no more sorrow, no more tears, no more pain, no more death, no more bad news? He says, if you want to know why you get to go to that place and why that place, how you can even be a part of that, he says, it's because of Jesus. He says, Christ has come and brought that. He takes it from us. And so we might find in that Matthew 5, 4, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be what? They'll be comforted, won't they? There's a comfort. Even not only, remember Matthew, um, I believe it's Matthew 8, verse 16 and 17, said this applied to Jesus taking on sicknesses and diseases. But also so much more so our spiritual sorrow, our spiritual grief, that we realize there's nothing we can do to make our way to God. He's saying the good news is Jesus has come to you. He has come to you to bring you peace. Secondly, it says that he was, verse 5 there, he was pierced for our transgressions. Look at that. Pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. I love the usage there. Do you notice it's about four times now? It says that these are actually our griefs and these are our sorrows and these are our transgressions and these are our iniquities. He's saying this is very specific to you. Christ has come and He's, he's brought this. He's bearing this. Verse 5 of Isaiah 53 there, it says He was pierced for our transgressions. We would look to the cross in that, will we not? Right? His hands that were pierced. His side that was pierced there after He died. His feet. 
Right? We, we, maybe we would journey with, with Thomas in John chapter 20 when he comes to Jesus and says, Listen, I'm not going to believe unless I see what? His hand, the scars in his hands and his side. And, and this is a beautiful moment because by, by the point John 20 comes about, Jesus Christ has already been crucified on the cross, buried, and raised again. This is the glorified, resurrected Christ, the one that you will encounter. And guess what he still has in his hands? What did he still have? Scars. He said, Look, Thomas, look at my hands. Can you imagine that for all eternity? Looking at him, those hands raised up. Can you imagine the moment when he, he he's, he's got a physical resurrected body? I don't know how all that'll work, but can you imagine just shaking hands with that brother and he sticks his hand out for all eternity and just says, "Hey, I, I love you," and you're like, "Whoa, that, that's, that's Isaiah." Seven hundred years before, saying this guy's he's going to be pierced, and it's for your transgression, church. He says, listen, this punishment, the reason why he's crushed, it's because of you. It's because of me. It's the beauty of what Christ is bringing. Thirdly, and the third thing I want you to see here from Isaiah 53, look what it says. Verse 5. It says, he was pierced for our transgressions. He's crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. Do you see that? The chastisement that brought us peace. I don't know about you, but... um, I grew up in a home where sometimes you got in trouble, you got disciplined. All right? I used to kind of, maybe I would say a joke right here, and then I've walked beside some kids that, that have been abused in their homes, and so I don't make light of it anymore. Um, God forgive me of that in the past. I'd probably make some funny joke about getting whoopings and all that, and we would maybe laugh. Um, and then I've seen kids that have been beaten in their homes. and uh, It's not funny. But can you imagine... If you grew up in a home where there was godly discipline, where you, 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 were, you were disciplined, I don't know how your parents may have done that, but in a way that was corrective but not abusive. I had two older brothers, and any time the judgment was being rendered, I can tell you this, if you weren't a part of receiving the chastisement, you were not present. Right? He says, listen, the chastisement that you and I deserved, the moment before that discipline was rendered, there was one that stepped in and said, I'll take that. I'll take the disobedience to your parents. I'll, I'll, I'll take that judgment. I'll take the curfew restrictions for you. I'll take the keys that you, your parents took away. I'll take that judgment, that, that, that discipline. I'll take that. that. That's mine. It says that chastisement was upon him that brought us what? What did it bring us? You see that? It brought us peace. He takes the judgment. You get the peace with God. There's no better like deal than that. It's like, what is this? That's why it's amazing grace. How sweet the sound. It just, it just sounds sweet. And look what it says, though, further, though. Verse 5 of Isaiah 53, as it comes to a close here in this verse, it says, With his wounds we are healed. Just for a moment, I want to get practical, because some of this, at some points, can become so maybe theoretical that you, you miss out on the beauty of it. The living. First Peter 2 and verse 24, Peter cites this very passage. And it says, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By His wounds you've been healed. But look what He says. He says, You want to know what's happened practically that transforms your life because of what Christ did for you? How He bore His sins on the tree, on the cross? He says, This brings about the fact that you might what? Die to sin and what? Live to righteousness. He says, His judgment for you, His taking on that, should transform your daily life now. That you should no longer live in sin. That you should live for God. That you should live in obedience to what God's brought before you. Why? Because His wounds have healed you. He has taken your punishment. 
That you could be free today. That, 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 that it no longer has to define your life. This is so beauty. Um, so maybe the question will be, well, why would God do this? Right? Like, why is all of this happening? And look what the prophet says further with me. Verse 6 here of Isaiah 53. Again, we're just walking through it verse by verse to the best of our ability. He says, all we like sheep have what? We've all gone astray. We have turned, look what he says there again, everyone to what? To their own way. And because of that, the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. He's saying, listen, everybody, all of us, without exclusion, have done our own thing. The book of Judges, in Judges chapter 21, verse 25, yeah, the very last statement of Judges 21, the book comes to a close. It leaves us with this final epitaph. It says that, and everyone did what was right in their own what? Eyes. And that's what the Bible's saying here. It's saying, listen, all of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. Everyone here, without exclusion, has gone after what we thought was best. He says, listen, I want you to know that's what we've done. We are all guilty of that. Some of you here maybe think that you haven't done something as bad as other people. He says, listen, we're all in the same camp. We've all turned away from God and gone our own way. Maybe just a practical illustration for you, and I'm not trying to be crude, but maybe this will make sense and practical. Some of you here, you think when you go to the facility, the restroom, and you leave, that you don't need the fan. Can I just say a bit of wisdom from the rest of us? You need the fan. Are you with me? You need the fan. Listen, and God's telling us here today, listen, you may think your stuff doesn't stink like everybody else's. You can, you can light as many candles as you need. You can spray as much potpourri as you need. He said, but you can't cover that up. But there's one who came to take that stink from you. Who came to rid your heart of that smell. He says his name is Jesus. His son came. Look what it says there. And the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. Look what it says further. Verse 11. He shall bear their iniquities. Again, look at that. Yet he bore the sin of many. You see that? All of this happening. If you think in your own eyes that your way is okay, he's saying, listen, it's not. Your your way has brought iniquity. Your way has brought sin. Your way has brought transgression. You have gone against God. You have opposed God. He says, I want you to know. But you would sit there and ask, Blake, why? Why would this iniquity of us all, why would Christ do this? Right? Why would God lay on Him the iniquity of us all? It's because the good news is, is that Jesus, as a sheep, He never went astray. So when he comes to the cross and dies, he's not dying for his own sin. He doesn't have any of his own iniquity to bring. He's not bringing any of his own sin. He doesn't have anything in the closet to bring. There's no secret sins. There's no hidden sins. He is sinless, according to 2 Corinthians 5 and 20. And on the cross, it says that God made Jesus who knew no sin, who had never sinned, to be your sin. Your lies, your dirty jokes, your potty mouth, your adultery, your hatred. Your stealing, your unforgiveness, your pride, your jealousy, your rage, your anger, all those things, your addictions, your secret sins. It says all of that was on the cross, on the Son of God. And he's suffering for you. 
Isaiah 53 is yours today if you're in Christ. And if not, this is your hope. You must come to this truth. There is the only God who can provide this further with me. The fifth thing I would say. The cross of Jesus Christ points to us is, look what it says, verse 8. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off? Cut off out of the land of the living. Stricken for the transgression of my people. Why was he cut off? Why was his life ended? Look what it says. Why did this happen? It's for the transgression of my people, right? He was cut off. He, he literally died that you and I wouldn't have to. He experienced the judgment of God that you and I would not have to. He says, you want to know why he was cut off? It was because of you. Because of me. It was our sin. It was our transgressions. It was our hand against God saying, I don't want you, God. I don't want to follow your ways. I want to do my own thing. He says, that's why the Son of God was cut off. And maybe you're saying, Blake, who, who devised this plan? Like, who came up with that? Verse 10 of Isaiah 53 is shocking. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. To cause his son to suffer. This was God's plan. Now humanity was all too eager to carry it about, but this was God's will. This was God's plan. That only his son could satisfy his anger and judgment of sin. That only the son could live a sinless life and therefore pay the penalty not for his own sin, but for yours and for mine. It was God's will to crush His Son. This was God's plan. And so we see this, the necessity, right? Back in Acts 17, verse 3. It was necessary for the Christ to suffer, but Paul says he also had to prove or explain from the Old Testament why the Christ had to rise from the dead, saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is in fact the Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the Son of David. He is the long-awaited one. So why was it necessary for Christ only to suffer, but also to rise from the dead? Well, Isaiah 53 gives us some serious clarity on that as well. Back in verse 10, it says it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Isaiah 53, verse 10, sorry. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. Look at that. So you see that statement right there. His soul makes an offering for guilt. So it's saying, listen, this is what happens on behalf of his death. His death was an offering. That's an offering. It's kind of a unique word there in itself, isn't it? Jesus Christ said, I lay down my life, what? Willingly, didn't he? And he said, I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. He said, I want you to know I chose to die for you. This wasn't like somebody putting their hand behind the back saying, I have to do it. I went to the cross willingly. Remember what he told Pilate? He said, Pilate, listen, you, you have no authority over me if it weren't given to you from above. He said, ultimately, this is my dad's plan. So when you think about the fact, are you worthy or what are your self-worth? Don't look inwardly. Don't look to the culture. Look to the cross. That's your true identity. If you've ever wondered what value are you, it is in the cross of Jesus Christ. He willingly died for you. Willingly. Wow, look at this. This is beautiful. This is what happens in response. All right, or in response to the resurrection. He shall see his offspring. Um, some of you I know are carrying the amplified version. When you see offspring there in your text, if you have it with me, um, verse 10, you're going to see something bracketed. What do you see bracketed there? It says offspring. Does anybody carry the Amplified? Miss Brenda, I thought, that well, are you packing it today too? Sometimes you guys on Wednesday nights have it. Spiritual. 
The Amplified says, listen, you want to know what this offspring is? It's helping us interpret it so you don't get confused. He says, this offspring of his is spiritual. But some of you are packing the King James. It's a little bit more literal. It's following a literal rendering of the Hebrew text here. And it's going to say something rather than offspring. It says, did you see it there? He shall see his what? Do you have it? It says his seed. It says, listen, there's a seed of Jesus. And you're saying, well, why is this seed significant? Well, remember John chapter 3. Jesus is encountering one of the religious teachers of that day. And his name is Nicodemus. And he tells Nicodemus in John chapter 3 there, he says, I tell you the truth. No one can see the kingdom of heaven unless they're what? Born again. You have to be born by a seed, right? The man provides a seed. It's part of it. The man and the woman coming together. And he's saying, listen, I want you to know that my seed is coming about how? Peter tells us, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23. He says, you have been born again. Not a perishable seed, right? Not like of a, a seed of your father that because of the fact that you and I are flesh, we're going to die again. He says, I want you to know the seed that God's given you. He says, the seed that God has given you, it's imperishable. He says, you will never die. Those that are in Christ will never die. You may die physically, yes. But he says, spiritually, you will never perish. He says, how does this happen? Through the living and abiding Word of God. Well, John 1 and 14 says the Word became what? Flesh. He says, I want you to know, this is not simply about a plan of salvation. This is about the man of salvation. You can know about the plan, and you can have all the theories, and you can understand it all so up there, cerebral. You can explain every answer. He said, I want you to know him personally. He says, you can be born again. This seed, he shall see his offspring. Do you see that back there in verse 10 of Isaiah 53? How does he see his offspring unless he's raised? Think about this for a moment. How does he see you for eternity unless you're raised? This is big. This is your eternity. And it's all the DNA is pointing back to Jesus. That's what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, that Jesus is the first fruits. It says His resurrection guarantees that you in Christ will also be raised. It's just like a first fruit for the, cro- the farmers. I don't know if many of you are farmers, but I'm sure you get jacked up when you see some sweet first fruits coming out. Like, what? It's going to be an awesome yield this year. I cannot wait. He says, listen, how much more that Christ has been raised from the dead for us that are in Him. It is a guarantee that we too will be raised. That's the hope that Isaiah is telling us. That's the hope of the New Testament writers that only Christ can bring. Further with me. It says, he shall see his offspring there in verse 10 of Isaiah 53. And he shall prolong his days. See that statement there? He shall prolong his days. Why? Because Romans 6 verse 9 says, we know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. He says, listen, he's going to prolong. He's going to live forever and ever. And if you are in Christ, you will live forever and ever in him. Look at though, again, this is just for a moment in case we get so much head knowledge today that we miss the actual application, living it out. Romans 6, 4 provides some immediate application. He says, we were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too, look what he says, might walk in newness of life. He says, the fact that Christ was buried and raised again is a declaration that you also have been buried, but also raised in Him to walk in a new life. That the prolonging of your days is not only about what's happening in eternity. Yes, the beauty of that. He says, listen, I want to prolong your days here and now, that your days on earth would actually have meaning. That you would live a new life in me and for my glory. 
Another thing here just comes about a part of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It says, the will of the Lord, see that verse 10, the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Well, how's this going to prosper? Well, again, he says, out of the anguish of his soul. Look at that right there. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see. And I love this statement right here. And be what? You can't miss this one. All right, if you're asleep, you need to wake up. This right here is big time. Not because it's me, because it's the Word of God. So out of the anguish of his soul, he says, looking at the cross, experiencing God's wrath, all the, all the pain he went through, the scourging, all that for you. Look what it says here. He shall see, speaking of the resurrection, looking toward the end, and be what? He looks at you. And in light of all that he went through, and he says, you were worth it. You are worth it. He is satisfied of all that he endured. And he looks at you for all eternity and he says, I am satisfied. You are worth it. I mean, how much more love? I don't know where else you're going to get love like that. There's no one else that can love you like that. that can experience that for you and say, you are worth it. I loved you so much. I love you that much. Man, it's a beautiful moment of being satisfied in Him. Why? Revelation 7 and 9 would tell us, right? There's a great multitude before Him that no one can count of every nation, tribe, people, tongue, and language. It says, standing before the throne. And they are dressed in what? Do you remember? White. So for all eternity, Revelation 7 and 9 tells us, according to Isaiah 53 here, verse 11, that when He sees you there standing in white, He has satisfied you. You standing there, the white represents holiness, godliness, Christ-likeness. You have put off the sinful flesh and all of that. I, I don't know about you, but maybe you've heard the song. I heard an old, old story. How a Savior came from glory. How He gave His life on Calvary to save a wretch like me. I heard about His groaning of His precious blood's atoning. Then I repented of my sins and won the victory. Do you see that? This is saying this is your anthem. Isaiah 53 is your anthem in Christ. You can declare, Oh, victory in Jesus, my Savior forever. He sought me and bought me with His redeeming blood. He loved me ere I knew Him and all my love is due Him. He plunged me to victory beneath the cleansing flood. Today, I invite you to come and respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ, the one who bled and died, even though you and I, like sheep, have gone astray. The Lord laid on him our iniquity. He bore your sin. He bore all of your mistakes, all of your shame. And he looks at you, sees you dressed in white, and he's satisfied even over the anguish of his own soul that you were worth it. The good news is, is that this isn't simply, it just simply took place in the past. I close you with this. Verse 12, Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many, look what it says, and makes intercession for the transgressors. Look what Hebrews 7.25 says as we close. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost. Man, that's good. Those who draw near to God through Him, since He always lives to do what? Intercession. Intercession. He ever lives. 
You're here today and you think you've done too much wrong. Maybe you're a believer and you, you trusted on Christ at some point. And you think, well, I, that was great when I was saved, but what about now? I've made a lot, big mess of things. He says He ever lives to make intercession for you. Continually, His life is a testimony before God. They are forgiven. I've cleansed them. They're saved. I don't care what Satan says. And He's always the accuser of the brothers and sisters. He keeps coming, bringing our trash and our dirt before God. And God just says, keep looking at my son. Keep looking back at my son. That's paid for. That's covered. So today, would you come to God? You can't come as you are. You're not good enough as you are. You must be willing to repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And God would save you as you are, but not leave you as you are. He makes you a new creation. That continually before God, there is the Son of God interceding on your behalf. Declaring you are holy. You have been made righteous. You are clean. I know of nothing else. His love for you that He could look to you. He could see your very depths of your being and look at you and be satisfied because the sacrifice was sufficient. Indeed, the words from the cross are true. When it comes to your sin and my sin and the payment of those, it is finished. It's finished. Stop paying for it. It's finished. Receive it. Can't clean up enough. Come as you are. Come as you are. Come on right now. Come to Him. You're welcome to come forward, Brother Todd. And I love to talk and pray with you. But right as you are, right there, call out to Him. Call out to Him. He ever lives to make intercession for you. He's able to save, it says, to the uttermost. From the guttermost to the uttermost. That's how great His transformation and forgiveness is. Do you know it? Let us pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, we come only because Your Word, God just points us continually back to Jesus. I just want to say, Lord, thank you. Thank you for saving somebody like me. I, God, I, what a scoundrel. God, that you would just, Lord, your, your grace is sufficient. Oh, God, it overwhelms me. Thank you. You look at Blake Jesse for all eternity and be satisfied. Oh, what a Savior. Oh, how wonderful. God, you're so good. Oh, that you could love me, God. Thank you. God, be with my brothers and sisters now. Speak this truth into their life, God. Stir them up by the power of Your Spirit. Call them forth, God, to respond to Your Son, to give Him glory, to bow their knee in this place and declare He's my Savior. I love You, Lord. I ask it in Jesus' precious name. Amen.